reading from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, through Exodus 16, verse 3, as well as chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the Lord, to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to a limb where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from a limb, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between a limb and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped by Rephidim, where there was, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks. The New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, no, God is able to uh, these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, um, we just prayed a few minutes ago that um, you would grant us to hear your word, uh, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, um, so that by patience uh, and the truth of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Um, will you do that? Um, will you give us uh, uh, trust, clarity, faith, uh, understanding that we cannot generate ourselves? Will you go and address the doubts that plague us and um, the obstacles that we simply cannot overcome by ourselves? Will you address everything that needs to be addressed so that fundamentally we can, need, we can know you? That's what we want. We want to know you and be found in you and to meet you and to be met by you. So come and do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And um, it's helpful if you would turn back to page nine. Um, we're continuing our series that we've been looking at all autumn long in the book of Exodus. And uh, during Advent, we're following the people of Israel uh, be, as they kind of live between two really, really important moments. Um, they've just come out of the Red Sea. Uh, they have not yet gotten to Mount Sinai. If you know the story of Exodus, which I don't assume that all of us do, um, both of those are critical moments. When they uh, pass through the Red Sea, we'll talk about that in a second, that kind of launches them into freedom. For the first time, they're not slaves of, of Egypt anymore. They've gotten past that. But they're not to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, uh, they're going to get to know God a lot better. But they're in between. They're traveling. And that's where we pick up the story today. And part of the reason we're looking at this in-between time during Advent is that during Advent, this is when we remember how we as Christians, we are walking in between. We look back to the coming of Jesus, but we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And right now, we're learning how to live in between. So we're going to look at this story, and uh, we're going to let Israel uh, give, us, uh, give us some pointers. And, and it's a really interesting story because here, um, like I said, this is, in one sense, is a really exciting moment because this is the first time that we get to watch Israel free. This is, so the beginning of our reading is the very next verse after they stop singing because they're uh, so excited they escaped Egypt through the Red Sea. The very next thing that happens is our reading, and therefore there's a, a way in which this is Israel's honeymoon with the Lord. Were you reading it? Didn't it sound like a honeymoon? No, it takes them three days to start complaining. Three days of freedom, they start complaining. And it takes them three months to the, get to a point where they completely want to give up, go back to e uh, Egypt. And actually, they fantasize not just about going back to Egypt and being slaves again. They fantasize about going back to Egypt, being slaves again, and dying with their bellies full. So our job today is to try to figure out what happened. What happened on the honeymoon? Because they were really excited last week because they'd gotten through um, the Red Sea. But then our reading today, they wake up the next morning and they look at their new God and they're not sure they made the right decision. What happened? And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at Israel's quarrel with the Lord 
and then the Lord's kindness to Israel. And as we look at those two things, we're going to, look at, we're going to learn about our own heart, and we're going to learn about how to walk with our Lord. So first of all, Israel's quarrel against God. Again, remember where we're at in the story. <clears throat> Israel was enslaved in Egypt for a super long time. And then God did all sorts of things. We've been looking at this all autumn long to get them free. And it all culminates at the Red Sea. You remember the, the scene. Uh, Israel has uh, charged out of the cities of Egypt. They are heading towards the border. But they get pinned down. They get sandwiched between the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army behind them. The Egyptian army is swooping in. They change their mind. They don't want Israel to be free anymore. And so they're swooping in on Israel, and Israel doesn't have any place to go. They have no way to defend themselves and no way of escape. And this is going to be the end of the story. Except the Lord intervenes, and he uh, divides the Red Sea. Israel escapes. Egypt runs in after them, and then the Lord stops dividing the Red Sea, closes it, and Egypt is destroyed. And Israel parties like it's the 4th of July. And then verse 22 happens. That was the fast-forward version. Verse 22, then the Lord made, or then Moses rather, made Israel set off from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Now, uh, enter into Israel's experience here um, because it's completely understandable for them to be worried about water, right? Uh, they need water, they're thirsty, they want water. There's nothing wrong with wanting water and feeling the urgency of that need. And keep in mind that this is the first time they've ever really, as far as we know, ventured into the desert. They've spent uh, all of their lives uh, right next to the Nile River. Uh, everything in ancient Egypt was next to the Nile River uh, because if you weren't next to the Nile River, you didn't have any water. So this is the first time that Israel's been away from a, a, a relatively reliable, very reliable uh, water source, and they're worried about it. And they have every reason to be worried about it. And then when they finally do find water, they find that it is bitter. It's mara. That's what the word means. It's poisoned. It's unpotable water. And so they get scared. And you can appreciate why they would be scared. Of course it is right for them to be concerned about their water and for them to desire water. And this is something we need to see right up front. There is nothing wrong for, with Israel's desire for water, but the problem comes, what we're going to see is that the problem comes with what they do with that desire. Now consider this for just a second. Do you remember the very beginning of Exodus, like three months ago? Um, ch chapter 1 of Exodus, we meet Pharaoh. Do you remember this? And do you remember Pharaoh is filled with desire? Do you know what his desire was for? He wanted two things. He was concerned about uh, national security, and he was concerned about the economy. And we mentioned at that time that those are entirely appropriate concerns for somebody who's leading a nation. The problem is not the initial desire, the problem is what it is that Moses or that Pharaoh does with that desire. Because what he does, we found out several months ago, is that uh, in pursuit of national security and a good economy, he enslaves the people of Israel and he tries to commit genocide. It's what he does with the desire that's really the issue. Now keep that in mind and go back to our story. Because Israel is super thirsty. 
in this moment. And so they start grumbling. They grumble against their leader. Their leader, Moses, cries out to God, and then God responds. Did you notice this? God responds almost instantly. He purifies the water at Mara, and then immediately after that, he leads them to an oasis with all kinds of water around them. Now, this is important because the Lord is showing them, just moments out of, out, after escaping from the Red Sea, that the same God who rescued them from Egypt is also going to provide them water in the desert. He's going to provide for them on their journey. Now, all that's fantastic, but now, look at the scene two months later. They move on from the oasis, and once again, they find themselves with a lack of water. And watch their instinctive response. Look down at chapter 17, the last full paragraph on page 9. Chapter 17, verse 2, it says this. Therefore, because they found no water, the people quarreled again with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, follow what's happening here. They're thirsty again. Anything wrong with that? No, but it's what they do with their thirst. And it's a little bit like this. They look at their unmet desire, in this case, thirst. And then they go from their unmet desire to the Lord, and their hearts begin thinking something a little bit like this. Friends, we've been duped. We've been duped. We all thought that the Lord was like, Good. Uh, and it kind of made sense at the moment because uh, he got us out of Egypt and we thought Egypt was bad and we thought Pharaoh was bad. We thought that it was good that the Lord was getting us out of Egypt. But now look at where we've ended up. Look at what we're thirsty. And this is not the first time, let me point out, it's the second time we're thirsty. God, the reasoning goes like this God cannot be good if I'm thirsty again. God must not be good. He brought us out of Egypt to kill us, slowly, by thirst. Now, pause. Oh, and then they want to go back to Egypt. Better to die there. Now, just consider this for a second. Um, ask yourself the question, does this sound like a good and logical analysis of the situation? Um, uh, earlier this week, I was listening to the radio, and um, there's a, a social scientist journalist called uh, uh, Shankar Vedanta, and oh, it appears that we're having electrical difficulty. Um, and what, what happened is uh, he, he reported on this study, uh, this social scientist study that um, looked at what happens in our brains when our emotions are really what he calls hot, when our emotions are up, uh, versus when our emotions are cold. So what he means by hot emotions is when you're really, really afraid or really, really angry or really, really happy. And our emotions are cold when it's just normal, just standard state. And the study found that when our emotions are hot, when we're really afraid or really angry or really, really happy, it's almost like that experience overshadows everything else, and it's almost as if we can't 
uh, accurately remember what it's like to have normal emotions or a different emotion. And the journalist uh, said that it is, the study found that it's almost as if we become different people for a short amount of time when our emotions are really, really hot. That's why it's sometimes hard to anticipate how we're going to respond in stressful situations. Now, that's where Israel's at here. Their emotions are hot. And in that moment, they completely forget God's goodness. And they conclude that God cannot be trusted. Now, their desires are real, but their desires are not always a reliable guide to reality in the moment. And that brings us to us. Let me ask you a question. Um, what do you do when your desires go unmet? Or let me sharpen the question a little bit more. What do you do when your desires, uh, when you really, really want something, and then you don't get it, and then it takes a while, and you begin to think that you're never going to get it? What do you do then? And then, let's sharpen it a little bit further still. What, when that happens, when you have unmet desires and you experience that desire over a long period of time, and you think you're never going to have that desire fulfilled, how does that begin to shape or reshape your view of God? Pharaoh's desire, which at the beginning was legitimate, leads him ultimately to do terrible, terrible things. Israel's desire in this moment... Their, their desire for water and for food, those are good desires. But what they do with those desires, and especially what they do when those desires go unmet for a little bit of time, that ends up revealing who they really are. It revealed who Pharaoh really was, and here it reveals who Israel is right down at their core. Because what happens in this story is as Israel's desires go up, their trust in God goes down, and finally, it bottoms out entirely. Look at verse 7, because they eventually conclude that the Lord, not only is the Lord not good, they just conclude that the Lord is not with them at all. Is the Lord here? The idea is God must not be real because my desires are going unmet. Now, bring this back to us. How does your view of God change when your desires go unmet for a long time? Do you begin to think that God's not good? Do you begin to think that God's not there at all? Does something like this happen? Do you begin, to, to, do you begin looking around you and you can see that other people have maybe the one thing that you desire and haven't experienced? And then, not all at once, but little by little, you begin to see that other people have that thing that you want but do not have. You begin to see other people, and it begins to uh, sow an idea that maybe just God's not good. At least God's not good to me. God's good to other people, but maybe God's not good to me. And then, not all at once, but little by little, you begin to think, actually, maybe God's not even there at all. And then there's a little whisper somewhere in the back of your mind that starts to say, you know what, following Jesus just isn't worth it, and you were better in Egypt. 
You know, think, about, think about that for yourself, but go back to the story. Because this ends up being a pivotal moment in Israel's history. This moment gets remembered all through the Hebrew Scriptures and all through the entirety of the Bible as a key moment where Israel tested God. And this uh, begins a pattern that gets repeated again and again and again, and it gets repeated in our own hearts. So what does it mean to test God? One theologian says it this way. Just listen. To test God is to pose an ultimatum in which we decide what shall count as evidence of God's presence, and then decide on God's presence or God's absence on the basis of whether or not God has met the test that we posed. In essence, testing God is demanding that God jump through our hoops and make himself answerable and accountable to us. Sovereignty passes to us, which means we place ourselves in the place of God. Emmanuel, what we do with our unmet desire will determine a great deal about us. And there's a way in which it will reveal who we really are underneath and behind our facades. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh deals with his unmet desires by grasping onto sovereignty, taking it for himself, and he ends up committing crimes against humanity. Israel is different. They deal with their unmet desire by, similarly, grabbing onto sovereignty and then passing judgment on God. He's not there and he's not good if he is. So bring it back to you. What do you do with your unmet desire? And how does your experience of unmet desire change how you view God? And it's a question that really matters because if I deal with my unmet desires by grasping onto sovereignty, and if I meet, uh, deal with my unmet desires by firing God or concluding that God cannot be trusted, I might get rid of God out of my life. But then do you know what I'll have when I'm done? I'll still have my unmet desires. Except now they will master me. And maybe I'll have a, a chance to, um, to, to, to meet, to satiate one or two of my previously unmet desires, and that'll make me feel good for a little bit. But the minute you deal with one unmet desire, two more pop up in their place. And you, if you look back on your life for just a few minutes, you'll know that that's true. The human heart is insatiable. You meet one desire, and you've got another two, three, or four that pop up out of nowhere. The reality is we will end up being enslaved by our strongest desires. And Emmanuel, our desires are wicked taskmasters. So, how do you avoid testing God? Well, look at chapter 15, verse 26. The Lord points Israel to his word. This is one of the first times in the book of Exodus that the Lord mentions his commands and his word. And here's part of the point. When our emotions are hot and when our desires go unmet, we're tempted to conclude that God is not good or God is not there. What we need is the word of God to stand outside us, to orient us to reality. Remember, our desires are real, but they are not a reliable guide to reality. 
And therefore, we need the word of God that is something that is outside us, that doesn't rise and fall based upon our emotions and our experience of day in and day out, something that's solid, that will provide ballast for the ship and orient us to who the Lord is. Because in this text, the Lord says, if you go and you listen to my word, he says, Israel, you will find out that I am your healer. But then there's a flip side to this story. And there's a tragedy in this story. Do you know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is that Israel's quarrel with the Lord blinds them to the Lord's kindness to Israel. Can you see the Lord's kindness here? Um, Do you notice how eager God is to provide water for Israel? Did you notice that? Israel needs water twice. The Lord provides it three times. The Lord, you know, good fathers like to give good things to their kids. And the Lord's saying, hey, I'm, I'm a good father. I, I want to provide what you need, Israel. I may not provide everything that you desire, but I want to provide everything that you need, and I will. But then it goes further. Look at verse 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come forth from it, and the people will drink. Picture the scene. Imagine you're Israel, and you're really, really thirsty, and you're stressed about it. And God says, you thirsty? I want you to look at a rock. Now, how would that strike you? Come on, that is not encouraging, right? When you're thirsty, you don't want to look at a rock because they're dry and they make you more thirsty. And it's more than that because the rock is not just an image of Israel's unmet desire. The rock is an image of why Israel thought God was not there and not good. If God was good and if God was here at all, then I would be surrounded by rivers, not rocks. Don't make me look at a rock. But nevertheless, God says, Israel, look at that rock. Why? Look at verse 6, chapter 17, verse 6. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's something like this. God says, Israel, I want you to look at that rock. I want you to look right at your unmet desires. Now all the whole evidence that you pose, uh, you present against me to say that I'm not there and I'm, that I'm not good. I want you to look at your unmet desires and I, wanna, I want you to feel your thirst. And I want you to feel your thirst all the way down your soul. Feel it. You thought, Israel, that I'm not with you, but you're wrong, Israel. It's as if God says in this moment, I was with you, Israel, in the triumph of the Red Sea just a few weeks ago, and you knew that I was there then, but today I'm going to teach you something else. I'm going to teach you that I am with you also in the midst of your unmet desire. I was with you when you passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and today I am with you in the desert of your unmet desires. I'm still here, Israel. And then, as Israel watched, in the midst of their thirst, The rock cracked, and water started gushing out, and Israel drank. But look at it again. 
Do you see the connection between the water and the presence of the Lord? See, the Lord was quenching more than just their physical thirst. And the Lord was giving them something richer than water. The Lord was giving them himself. In just a few just a few days, the Lord's going to appear to them. His presence is going to appear to them on the mountain of Sinai. And that's going to be a key moment when they get to know the Lord. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, go back to our desires. Why is it that the human heart is insatiable? Why is it that we're never satisfied? Well, part of the reason is that the Bible says that underneath our presenting desires, there's a deeper thirst. Underneath our presenting desires is a deeper need. We're thirsty for something richer than water. And the thing that we're thirsty for, according to the scriptures, is we are thirsty to know God. We're thirsty to be loved by God and to love him in return. It's why our deepest intuition is that if there's anything satisfying in this life, it's got to have something to do with relationships. But nevertheless, all of our relationships typically are also the epicenters of our deepest pain. We were made for a better one. And take that back to Israel. Why does God in his presence stand on the rock? He stands upon the rock because he wants to satisfy Israel's deeper thirst. God is always God's best gift to us. God's best gift is always his presence, his love, his nearness, his relationship. And so do you know what all this means for us? Emmanuel, do you know what this means? It means that your unmet desire has a meaning. And the meaning of your unmet desire is not God is not good or God is not there. The meaning of your unmet desire is that the Lord is using even your experience and pain of your unmet desires. He's using it to allure you to himself. It means that God refuses to allow you to be satisfied with something that's not him. And it means that right in the middle of your experience and the pain of your unmet desires, the Lord wants to meet you. And you say, Jim, how in the world do you know that? How do you know that's true? To which I respond, thank you for asking the question. I know that because God stood on a rock and Jesus knelt in a garden. Do you remember when Jesus knelt in the garden? Did you know that God himself entered into your experience of unmet desire? Jesus, fully God and fully human, the eternal son of God, knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane. He knew that the cross was approaching and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to live and not die. And so he said, if there's a way that this cup can, can pass for me, that's my preference, God. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I'll do whatever you ask me, Father. Which means that Jesus, fully God and fully human, entered into our experience of unmet desire. And in that moment of unmet desire, he revealed who he really is. Our Savior and our King and the ultimate satisfaction of our deepest desires. He experienced unmet desire and he went to the cross and he lost his life to regain it again three days later. He did all of that so that you could be drawn into his presence for forever. So what do you do with your unmet desires, Emmanuel? Do you let it change the way you see God? That God's not good or God's not there? Do you get mad at him? Are you just about ready to give up? Don't. 
Unmet desires are real, but they are not a reliable guide to reality. And the reliable guide to reality is the word of God, which has come to you and holds up Jesus Christ and says underneath your desires that right now I appreciate and the Lord knows that they cause great and grave pain. And sometimes right now, even right now, you may be able to say, I don't know how I can reconcile this unmet desire with the goodness of God or the presence of God. But nevertheless, God says, look at the rock. Look at the Son of God. Look at Jesus Christ writhing in pain upon the cross for you and for your eternal salvation. And look at him even now pouring out his Holy Spirit upon you, saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't take it from me. Look at Jesus Christ, because in the face of Jesus Christ, you will find the satisfaction of your deepest desire, and you will begin to taste the joy of an eternity in the presence of God. Look, Emmanuel, at the rock. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.